Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Anne and Chris Crane returned for a new episode with special guest Frank Perullo, co-founder and strategic advisor at Ascend Wellness Holdings. Frank joins us this week to discuss his pathway to the cannabis industry, Ascend's recent changes in management and its philosophy and drive, and his insights across the various cannabis markets in the United States. If you're interested in learning more about Ascend Wellness Holdings and its strategy of doubling down on the states where it operates, visit the links in our show notes. Also, be sure to follow Ascend Wellness Holdings and Frank on LinkedIn and Twitter. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Frank Perullo of Ascend Wellness Holdings. All right. So, Frank, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. Great to be here. Thank you, Chris. Absolutely. So, Frank, uh, we've known each other for a long time. You're, uh, you're a, uh, an industry veteran uh, by now, that's for sure. And, uh, you know, we're going to start the podcast by going into your background a little bit, but we should probably start with the, the big news, uh, which is, of course, when we booked you to be on the podcast, uh, you were uh, interim CEO of, or acting CEO, interim CEO, that's the exact title of, of Ascend Wellness. And um, as of, I believe, last Thursday or Friday, uh, Ascend has hired a full-time CEO, which is going to allow you to go back into your advisory slash uh, board roles. At, uh, is that right? So tell, tell, tell me a little bit about the, the transition that's happening both for the company and, and for yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, so I took on uh, an interim CEO role uh, in the fall. Um, I was the president of the company at the time. And uh, we had at the same time started a search with Russell Reynolds for a, uh, a new CEO of the company. And that took uh, you know, around six months, right? Six, seven months to uh, to find someone that we thought uh, could take on this industry and uh, the challenge of being a CEO uh, in these uh, in these markets and uh, you know the the way the industry is shaping up. And we were lucky enough to find uh, a really great individual who uh, we think will be a great CEO and John Hartman, and he starts today. And I will. Um, continue to advise the company and uh, continue on the board, which I, I think, you know, you both, you know, both uh, of those roles and uh, you know what that's like to found a company, lead a company, and then, and then take a little bit of a backseat to, uh, to newer management. Sure do. Yeah. I've been both president and a board member myself of uh, the MSO. So I, 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 I can sympathize and, and congratulations. I mean, I know, uh, I, I can't imagine how, busy your life has been the last six months or so in that role. And I hope you get a, a little bit of a reprieve here in your uh, post CEO role. But uh, I know, you know, I also know firsthand that, um, you know, being on the board of a publicly traded company is um, more work than I think most people realize. Uh, so it's, it's not like you're, you're uh, heading off into the sunset here. I'm sure we're going to be hearing plenty, uh, plenty about you and the work you're doing for Ascend over the, uh, in the coming weeks and months here. Yeah, I think so. I hope so. 
Excellent. And maybe and, we'll get and, uh, uh, maybe we'll get Mr. Hartman on a follow up uh, once he gets his feet wet here. We can bring him on the show for uh, for a follow up, maybe uh, you know six months or so from now. Absolutely. Yeah, we would love that. Uh, and Frank, I just want to go back a little bit. Um, you know, Chris talked about uh, you know you guys knowing each other for a really long time. Um, and I, you know, and, and we talked about where you are now, but I kind of want to go back and, and just, um, get your ascend in the industry. So how you got into the industry and, and, you know, what was your spark and, um, you know, where you see yourself going from now, from here. Sure. Um, well, I got my spark in the industry when I sparked a handmade bong out of a two liter bottle at the tender age of 14 years old in the woods next to my high school and have been. And this is active. Boston, like, but like, uh, yeah, uh, suburb of Boston. Boston. Okay. Yeah. Sitting, we're uh, sitting next. I was a freshman sitting next to the high school in, in the woods, made a nice handmade bong with a two liter for my friend who was more advanced than me at the time. Uh, but, you know, a love affair with the, the plant kind of soon followed and um, started in the industry on the consulting side, uh, much again, like Chris, where um, I saw an opportunity in Massachusetts after medical passed in 2012 and started a practice around um, siting, permitting, uh, licensing and public affairs around uh, everything cannabis in Massachusetts. And it was um, it was great because not a lot of the lobbyists in Mass wanted to take on cannabis. Uh, it was still a little taboo at the time, and I was uh, very happy to uh, to work for folks in the industry and help them get their uh, their business open and operational. So we did that um, for for a good five six years, and in doing that, I met uh, my now partner um, Abner Curtin. And, you know, he was investing in the uh, cannabis space. I was uh, consulting to it. He was um, looking at a potential investment for one of my clients. And um, we were connected. And through a series of coffees and breakfasts, we figured out that um, we would uh, make a uh, better MSO uh, operating company by not flying in from all these places and uh, not really knowing the industry very well. And so let's start our own. So we uh, founded Ascend in um, April of 2018, uh, just five years ago. And uh, the rest is history. Pretty rapid growth, too, in, in five years, considering where you started and where Ascend is now, which is a great, great segue into our next question here, which is you know a little bit more about Ascend Wellness. I mean, you, you are an MSO. You operate, I believe, in Six states, uh, if that's correct, uh, focus on limited license states east of the east of the Rockies, um, uh, places like Illinois, Michigan, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania. Um, correct me if I if I'm if I'm wrong any of there, but um, <laughs> uh, you know, talk a little bit more about Ascend's philosophy, how you choose where you want to operate, how you you know how you go about your operations. I mean, what really drives your you know, drives your your operational and and sort of corporate development philosophy. Yep, good question. Um, we so we've added seven state, Chris, in the recent weeks, uh, Maryland, uh, where we now have four dispensaries, um, and we're we're actively looking for a vertical. Um, but I think you know the easy way to answer this question is um, our company was started around the. Um, the concept of flagship assets and going deep within your states. 
Um, if you think back to cannabis sort of 1.0, it was get stores wherever you can open and plant a lot of flags in a lot of different states. If you, you know, think back to everyone cared about the map, right? Yes. The map they the all wanted deck. to show yeah. <laughs> their investors a map with lots of flags on it. And they wanted to get open uh, no matter where that was. And, and I and Abner, you know, we bonded over the fact that we wanted to aggressively pursue flagship retail assets uh, where you would cite a Starbucks or uh, a Lululemon or, you know, think flagship retail. Um, and so we did that in uh, permitting and licensing our, our first asset. It wasn't the first one we opened, but that's a different story. But in Boston on French Street, right by the Boston Garden and kind of in between the Boston Garden and Faneuil Hall. Um, and the, that was the concept, right? Open uh, flagship retail stores or you know, great performing retail stores in a normalized market in five to 10 years where there's always going to be uh, foot traffic and shopping, shopping, as well as going deep in the state you go to. Don't plant a lot of flags, plant a few, but go and be a top player in those states. So be vertical um, and take advantage of um, the opportunity as fullest as you can. And, you know, as you guys have had this, you know, really, you know, rapid success, what are there certain states that have stood out as um, as being particularly tricky or, um, you know, is it like once you have this limited license model down, does it but does it ever become easier? No, I mean, the industry yeah. is extremely <laughs> difficult. Um, you know, we're growing a plant and we still have all the challenges of, of real estate and nimbyism and people who oppose the plant and everything that it comes with it. Um, so it's not easy. But, um, you know, if you look at where we are and uh, the jurisdictions we operate in, it does uh, allow us to uh, to be a big uh, player at scale. Um, so when we started, it was Massachusetts and Illinois. That's where we started the company was in Mass, but we soon had assets under agreement in Illinois. Um, and Illinois has turned out to be a uh, driver for this industry in a lot of ways. When you think about um, GTI and Cresco, Verano, they came uh, from Illinois and they went other places first, uh, but it was Illinois that drove their success between 2000 and sort of 19 and, and today. Uh, large majority of, of uh, revenues and profits from some of those companies as they were growing and scaling came from Illinois. Um, again, limited license in uh, the fact that there were only 22 cultivation licenses. And at the time, there were 110 uh, dispensary licenses. Um, so we did it through acquisition. Uh, we acquired dispensary licenses, acquired one of the grows. Um, and at the time, they were distressed assets because the medical uh, market in Illinois was um, not great. It wasn't great for patients and it wasn't great for operators. Um, and that was due to the uh, the time the governor's office just not really putting a lot of resources towards it. And the law that was passed was quite prohibitive, right? You had to have fingerprints taken to get a card. You had to pick one store and only go to that store. Um, you know, things that we saw lifted ahead of or coming uh, in advance of recreational Illinois. But people forget some of these states passed medical and they didn't really have great programs 
um, New Jersey being another uh, very similar story. Yeah, you know, I actually want to stay here for a second because you brought up something really interesting about Illinois. And granted, I, I bring this up partially because I'm, you know, I'm biased. I live here in Chicago now uh, and have for, yep. for over five years. Um, but, you know, I, this development of Illinois as kind of the, 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 the epicenter of the MSO world, I find kind of fascinating, right? Because you think about... Yep. You think about, you know, where would be the epicenter of the cannabis industry in the United States? Like Chicago is not really the first place that would come to mind. <laughs> right? yeah, you probably think San Francisco or Los Angeles or Denver or Seattle or even New York, um, yeah. right? just being a hub of business. Um, and I have my own thoughts on how and why that came to be, but I'd love to get your thoughts as well. I mean, you're sitting in Boston, which I think a lot of people thought Massachusetts, that, that, that Boston was going to be that sort of business hub of cannabis. And, um, and it, you know, and there's still a lot based out of there, right? You're there and, and, and Leaf is based out of there. Um, but, you know, why do you think that Illinois and Chicago really became like the epicenter of sort of big cannabis business? Yeah. Especially, yeah, especially given that it started as this like tiny little like super restrictive medical market. Right, right. I mean, think about the opportunity that was placed on these MSOs plate. Right. If you're if you're Cresco, Verano and GTI, your home base is Illinois. You're trying to make um, uh, inroads into places at that time, like Massachusetts. But Massachusetts had a three cap of stores and Massachusetts has a hundred thousand canopy limit and unlimited licensing for cultivators. Right now, today in Massachusetts, there are about 100 cultivators active and operating close to it. And um, there's only three stores limit. Illinois passed a um, a bill, which, by the way, was the first time I believe it at the time uh, to date where it was passed legislatively, not by ballot question. It was. Yeah, it was the first legislature um, to pass legalization. And, you know, and, and they didn't pass adult use regs. They passed a, if my memory is correct, hundreds and hundreds of page bill. The bill was everything at the time. Um and it was pretty protective of those original 22 cultivating licenses. Obviously, they didn't release any more. Um, and they had only social or other licenses opening up. They were supposed to be, you know, one or two years later. Fast forward, what was it, Chris? Four years later, they, they started opening. And I think now yeah, we almost. have 18, <laughs> right, 18 of those stores open of the 185 licenses. So it's ended up being a really great mode around the MSO's business. And if you're one of those, I think it was 22 licenses, but really 19 cultivators, because some of them have two, and a couple of them are well underfunded. If you're Cresco and you're Verano and you're DTI and you have 150,000 square feet of canopy for a market that is in excess of uh, billions of dollars, right? Um, with you on 100, over 100 million a month to begin, that that opportunity is unlike any other state in the country. Oh, and by the way, they got to 10 licenses with um, uh, stores with adult use. So you went from the five cap to the 10 cap and you got a free license, which every, with every store you had. Yeah, that's right. right. That's so if right. you had two stores, you got two additional licenses. I mean, there hasn't been a piece of legislation passed like that anywhere else that was as a much of a gift to the current operators. 
Yeah, I mean, I think Arizona is really the only place. Is. Yeah, Arizona is kind of the only place you could make a similar a similar argument. Uh, but that was done by ballot initiative, and it's basically because the incumbents wrote the initiative that became the right. use law. Um, it's a little bit different. I think there was one other piece to this as well, which was somewhat just timing related. Um, and yeah. you know, I was there. I was there in those early days, right? I did the applications and worked with folks in in D.C., Arizona, Massachusetts, uh, Nevada, and in those early days, 2011, 2012, 2013, right, you kind of saw an increase in the quality of the people that were applying for licenses in each successive state as yeah. it became more socially acceptable. And I think Illinois was the first time, even though it was a, a, a you know, a pretty uh, restrictive medical program that, you know, you saw folks like Ben Kovler, right, and and mm -hmm. Charlie Bechtel and folks who came from, you know, major corporations that were based here deciding, yeah, it's acceptable enough that I want to get into this, right? And you didn't yeah. really have that in, like, the first medical round in Massachusetts, for example, a couple of years earlier. Um, but by the time you get there, REC had just passed in a couple of states, and it was no longer seen as quite as risky. And so you had these folks who came from bigger companies, bigger industries, real political connections, right? Jumping into this industry in a way that you just hadn't really seen in prior states. And then you throw on top of that everything you just walked through and you get, you know, Chicago being the the epicenter. It's just sort of fascinating. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but you know, this, I mean, this is a more of a, of a, of a esoteric discussion. I'm going to get back to you guys and what you're doing. Um, so, you know, you've talked a bit about where you are today, what you've been focused on. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the future. Um, sure. you know, are you looking to expand? Are you looking to potentially get into any of these West Coast markets? Or, you know, are you going to try and stay more focused on going deeper where you currently are? Like, where, where do you see Ascend Wellness going in the next couple of years? Uh, great question. Um, so, you know, we want to go deeper in every state that we can, right? So we have seven states. Um, the goal is um, to both go deeper in the states we're currently in and look for opportunities to continue uh, our growth. Maryland is a perfect example of the growth side of it. Um, we picked up four stores. Um, they were, um, uh, you know, I would say in distress, uh, late stage medical operator took on debt to to get open and operating, uh, not making a, a ton of money, and the opportunity of adult use is coming, and we get an opportunity to pick up four stores at um, you know at an accretive deal. Um, so now we're ready. We're uh, swinging hammers. We're getting those stores ready for the adult use uh, experience for customers. And we'll be able to, I think, leverage that sort of distressed uh, purchase into what I think is a very um, attractive uh, deal for, for AWH and its investors. Um, so we're looking for more opportunities like that. Um, I would say we'll be uh, looking to get vertical or at least uh, on the manufacturing side in Maryland, uh, get our own products on the shelves and try to take advantage of the vertical margins. Um, and we'll continue to expand in the states that we're in, which is the other side of the coin, right? So in Pennsylvania, we have two stores open, four more to come. I have to build those out, find locations, and get them open and operating. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, we do things quicker than most. 
right? We scaled the company uh, from zero to seven states uh, into one of the top players uh, in four to five years, whereas other MSOs sort of were started in 2012, 13, 14. Uh, particularly as you look at the tier ones, they're a little older uh, companies. They've been around. Um, so what we try to do is, you know, can you do it in six months? Let's do it in three. Um, same thing in Illinois, where we have one more license, right? We have now nine stores open. I got 10. We're uh, looking to site the 10th one now and get it built out and open. Um, and in Ohio, we have three stores that um, are being built to get us to that five cap. Um, so really get ready for those states, particularly Ohio and Pennsylvania, could be seeing adult use on either the ballot or through a legislative initiative in the coming, what, year or two. Ohio could be on the ballot as soon as this year or next year. So lot, lots to do to get ready to take advantage of what the opportunities could be in those states. And by the way, Frank, I was uh, I was at the opening of your new store in Tinley Park. Um, very cool, very cool store. I mean, great design, great staff. Um, uh, actually, but, uh, just a real quick follow up on that, because I thought what you're doing sure. there is interesting and different than uh, different than most of what I've seen there. This was uh, you guys were calling something like an outlet store. Right? Can you tell us a little bit about that that concept? Yeah, um, you know. We're, we're, we're in a lot of states that um, have a lot of product. And if you're a traditional retailer and you have oversupply, um, but you still have customer demand, we're trying to meet that customer uh, who is value shopping, who's looking for large formats um, somewhere by opening, opening an outlet store. Um, you're gonna have everyday low prices, so not promotional. Um, the price you see today is a price you see tomorrow, and often it's a $15 eighth or cheaper. Um, and, you know, with with uh, a lot of the cultivators that uh, have a lot of products where, you know, we're buying our product as carefully and as well curated for our customer, because that is at the end of it all. That's what drives a good customer experience is having the right product at the right price in that experience that I think you saw the way we design our stores and move our customers through. And our outlet stores tend to do that cheaper uh, with that everyday low price in the, the best selection you can get for the money. I mean, who doesn't love an outlet really? Right. Uh, <laughs> um, but you know, you, you bring up kind of, you bring up an interesting point of, um, you know, market saturation um, mm -hmm. and, you know, you're, you're doubling down on the, the, um, the states that you're in, but, um, you know, if we look at a state like Massachusetts, how are you navigating, um, you know, those, those, those difficulties, the, the market saturation and, and still opening new retail locations like New Bedford, um, mm -hmm. and, and this the outlet, like how, you know, yeah. how is that working? Sure. Um, so there's two pillars that I would say hold up the Massachusetts equation for us, which has made Massachusetts a successful state. Uh, for us, where a lot of other MSOs have, you know, shut down cultivation facilities, had had trouble uh, opening and operating successful stores. Um, two things: one, the flagship assets, right? Our assets are better than anyone else. Uh, we have a downtown location at Friend Street, which is, you know, one of the few stores really still cranking and in and around Boston, where there's just been more and more licenses. The location is just tremendous, right? You're, you always have people there, whether it's the Boston Garden or one of the largest train stations in the city. 
um, Astoria Newton that has plenty of parking and is on a major, major thoroughfare with, uh, you know, frontage on the Mass Pike, Mass Turnpike. Uh, great store, great experience, easy parking in and out. Um, and then New Bedford, where you get the convergence of two highways, um, two major highways, and right off the um, right off of an exit and a short a short drive, and then the parking lot of the I'd say the most popular um, discount grocery store and about five QSRs with you know a thousand parking spots. So just again a place where people go shop, uh, eat, and and go about their daily business. So a location second, really high quality product at a low price. Our Cannabis in mass is excellent, and we're getting $22 an eighth for it. So you can go in our store and get a $22 eighth, and the quality is amazing, or you can get a $110 ounce, um, cheaper than anywhere you can get in Massachusetts. Consistently, lots of different strains, lots of great selection, and it's high quality. So I think that's driving what we're, you know, our, what we're seeing as success in Massachusetts. Yeah, that's 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 great. And it is a I mean, it is a really, really difficult market um, in Massachusetts to, to be able to have success there. Uh, I mean, I can speak firsthand. That is uh, that that is fairly unique uh, in, in that market <laughs> these days. So you're clearly, clearly doing something right there. Um, let's talk on the product side a little bit here. Um, mm-hmm. We heard about the the launch of ozone vapes and concentrates in Illinois and Massachusetts. Um, mm-hmm. Like, how's that coming along, and and what makes your your vape products, your concentrate products, unique in the market? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's anything unique about them, particularly, right? I think what we have focused on over the last few years um, is quality, 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 right? Um, the Five years ago, when you started produce, we started producing. We could have put grass clippings in a bag and sold it, and that would have been okay. Um, <laughs> oh it wouldn't have been God. okay for the customers, but that's what the market was, right? The quality of of cannabis uh, in some of these legal markets was poor, and I, you know, it's it's that's not great. I'm not happy about that, but that that was with the market. Everyone was learning. They were scaling, and you saw a lot of quality control issues, including. Um, some of our products that that's the way the market, the early market went. Uh, but what we have focused on is producing high quality cannabis and their cannabis uh, manufactured products, including vapes and edibles and concentrates um, and being consistent about it and always trying to deliver for the customer a value of when you open the jar and I paid 22 or 45 or 55, they're getting that that product at the right price. Um, and I think generally, if you look at the way we've grown as a company, this sort of went to our strategy, which is what you asked about earlier. The first few years of our company was really focused on two things, grow weed, sell weed, right? Get your assets open, make sure you have product to provide the customers. Let's not get fancy. Let's not produce a bunch of brands. Let's not, you know, try to do all these different, you know, product innovations grow weed properly and sell weed properly at the right price. The last few years, I think, for us has been um, an inflection point of, all right, well, let's let's add to that. You know, we're, we're here. We've made it through what I think was some tough capital markets, and there's been a few turns of those capital markets. Um, and let's focus on our brands and let's focus on our products. Um, and we've done that. We've launched 
uh, all types of edibles, including uh, effect-based edibles, whether it's sleep or or what have you, and uh, concentrates and vapes. And you know, as your flower gets better, let's face it, hopefully your concentrates are matching them because that's the pure essence of that flower uh, in in a form that uh, services uh, folks who are used to the legacy market or who are uh, pretty high dose users uh, and patients. You know, we're talking about, um, uh, you know, kind of product innovation. Um, and there are, you know, some interesting technologies, you know, nanotechnology and, and, and all of this um, really advanced that, go, you know, kind of that goes beyond the, the plant and, and just a good old fashioned joint. Um, are there any, what's the next big thing? Like, do you, is there anything, you know, in the future that you think is going to be like so disruptive? Um, that, you know, it, it will make a mark. In terms of products? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, it's a private question for someone else, not for me. I mean, I, I, you know, still take some flour, grind it up, roll it up and smoke it like I did 30 <laughs> years ago. And, and, um, you know, I'm not necessarily sure what, what, uh, the new, the new folks are doing, but, um, I mean, I think just frankly, delivering on quality flour still is everything in this market, right? It's still 50% of the consumer. It's um, what I think is that greatest expression uh, of the plant and its powers, right? I mean, the effects from great flour for me is what everyone else is chasing through those other formats, right? Whether it's a a rosin-based edible or uh, a rosin vape pen or some, you know, solventless um, product, you're, you're trying to chase that, you know, that fantastic high that comes from that plant itself when you're, when, at least for me, when I'm smoking it. Um, so, so that's the way I'm going to continue to do it. And, and I'm not in the product innovation game, but I'm sure someone out of send is. That's I mean, well, sure. like you said, 50% of, of yeah. the market is still into old fashioned flour. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's, that's definitely, you're not putting the toothpaste back in that tube. Is there, um, uh, if you had, and I, and I hate, to, we hate doing this. No, we love doing this, right, Chris? What's your, <laughs> um, if you had to predict on, on federal, either legalization, rescheduling, descheduling, um, what would your prediction be? Yeah, I, I think that there's some uh, action that will be taken uh, in the next, uh, call it 12 to 18 months ahead of this next election cycle. I don't know exactly what that will be, but I do think that politics uh, will will drive some of these folks to make decisions that they probably don't want to or haven't wanted to make over these past few years. Um, you know, and if you look at the partisan nature of it. If you're Republicans, you want to take it off the table. If you're a Democrat, you want to drive a wedge um, from from uh, folks trying to look for reasons not to vote for uh, a Republican. If you're Biden, it's a win. You can deschedule, go to schedule three. You can do your, you, he's got a study going on that happens sort of in the summer, fall of next year. And he's a hero. And 70% of the people in the country rejoice for Joe Biden, you know, legalizing cannabis, which 
frankly, he should have already have done, but that's neither here nor there. And if you're a Republican, again, why not do it, take it off the table and do something that's palatable for you. So probably save for some version of safe that you see being reintroduced now. Um, that's, I, I think we have enough of the politics to drive the policy, which is what always has to happen. Policy, I love policymakers and I love lobbyists and, you know, these advocates. It's the politics that drives the policy always. Yeah, I mean, so I'd like to stay on that a little, a little bit here because um, I, I, I find this fascinating. Um, also, you know, an old school policy guy like you. Um, you know, I found the timing of Biden's announcement around the pardons and the rescheduling um, uh, process to be very telling. Uh, right. That announcement happened very shortly before the midterms in a midterm election where the Democrats were worried about losing the House and Senate. Um, and I, I, I just can't imagine that they made that announcement at that time without serious consideration for the political ramifications of doing so. And it tells me that uh, that the political folks in the Biden administration or the politics folks in the Biden administration see an electoral benefit to being in favor of cannabis reform, right? Even if the president himself is, you know, this is not really an issue he likes that much um, or cares much about. Um, I think they understand the political benefit there, which makes me optimistic that we're going to get some sort of positive recommendation out of the scheduling review and that they want it to happen in advance of the 2024 election and Biden's re-election campaign. Um, are you hearing anything or do you have any thoughts on that process, any predictions on when we might see it happen and what you expect them to come back with? Um, I mean, I'm not hearing anything directly that I think isn't in the, the ether, right? I'm not necessarily uh, someone who's been plugged into the DC process, although I think in my new role as an advisor to the both the board and the CEO of AWH, I will be getting a little more involved. Um, I think you know the intelligence uh, gathering is is still critical in this business, um, but the politics of it makes sense, um, and it's consistent with things I've heard. Right? Um, they've named someone on the federal side to study and oversee cannabis, you know, potential cannabis regulation. Right? They've named a former state regulator to that role. Um, two, they've started a study, right? And how long does a study take? Well, it doesn't take three months, but it certainly doesn't take three years if you don't want it to. Um, and you have that's an election. the key point. If you don't want it to, right. that's if you don't point. want it to, yeah. and you have an election coming up. So as you look for these confluence of events, um, it would be wise to have this settled sometime next summer or fall. Um, and you think, and then you start thinking, well, when? Well, I don't know. When's the Republican convention? Um, do you want to step on their press cycle? There's lots of the politics that will drive the policy here. And, and I think that's when you're likely to see these types of decisions coming out um, um, to, to further a political agenda, which is, you know, again, for this policy, I'm fine with that. Um, this, is, this is a long time in the making. It's been too long. Too many people are either in jail, still in jail, or have been in jail for this, this plant. And, uh, you know, we got we to gotta write that what once went wrong. Excellent. Um, and and then I guess at the state level, you know, what are you looking at in terms of some of these potential 
expansion opportunities um, and, and what states are you following? Like, are you excited about what might happen in Florida next year? Um, do you have any interest uh, from a business standpoint in these new sort of Southern medical states that are starting to pop up, right? And we've seen Alabama, Mississippi go, or it's like here chatter about North Carolina, South Carolina, right? So these sort of Southern and heartland states that have been off the table, are any of these exciting too? Or are they just kind of, you know, too small for what you guys are focused on right now? Uh, yeah, no, there are, some of them are really exciting. Um, North Carolina looks to be like a great program. Um, I think uh, South Carolina could be as well. Those are those are exciting for sure. Um, I think Georgia is an excellent uh, place to to look. I mean, I know there's, you know, I'm going to just, you know, forget about all these lawsuits that you see in some of these, you know, medical markets or, or new markets, right? There's always a lawsuit. There's always a holdup. But for putting that aside, I think Texas, Georgia, uh, and the Carolinas are wonderful. Alabama was uh, probably a is probably a great opportunity, but that application was one of the uh, more arduous applications that I've seen. Um, and you know, we're uh, we've been focused on sort of operating the business, and we've been such a, a acquisitive business generally that we haven't we haven't won a license yet, which I'm not proud to say. But we have really you know grown our company by acquisition. Um, so I think generally I'd like to to maybe uh, take a stab at winning some of these licenses. And Alabama was one that um, probably was worth the effort. Uh, and I'm, I think they're going to probably announce those winners pretty soon. But um, there's some good opportunities out there. Yeah, yeah right. So there's some yeah. good opportunities out there, though, in, in some of these states. And I think um, I think we're looking at, at the, all of those states you, that I just mentioned and you've mentioned as uh, as potential expansion opportunities. So I have one last question. Well, maybe we have one last question. If you say something <laughs> that genders another question, we'll ask that. But um, if you are to, what's the biggest cannabis story that's being undertold in the media? So if you were to open the um, New York Times or the Boston Globe tomorrow, what would be your dream story on the front page with regards to cannabis? Well, I'm, I'm going to answer your question in the business way, and then I'm going to answer it personally. Um, for for my business and for generally industry, uh, it should be 280E. I think if you explain to people that this is a federally illegal substance that we're not allowed to trade and have commerce in in regulated format or fashion, but yet the industry takes our money, the federal government takes our money. In the amount they do, I think people will be like, what do you mean? Because when I tell people that we pay uh, federal tax, they look at me like I'm crazy. And when I explain that we're effectively taxed 50 plus percent as an industry, um, when, you, when you add local, state and federal taxes, they then look at me like, well, then you're probably a way more successful business than, than we're seeing. And, you know, it's really government that's allowing you to be in business, but also uh, holding back the industry as a whole. Um, so it's not really a, uh, very sexy answer, but 280E in that tax code is, um, is for me what I, I think we should be shining a light. Cause I just find it to be, um, it's, it's the most limiting factor. I think of some of these companies who are trying to turn a profit and get to the other side of this, uh, you know, these capital market constraints, it's, it's the most important thing today. I think all of our listeners would say that 280E is very sexy. So don't sell yourself short. That's a sexy headline, Frank. 
Um, yes, it is. <laughs> and, what about, and what about the piece of the, there was a personal side of it too. Yeah. The business yeah. Side, uh, I, I part think it's it. the power of the plant. I, I think people don't appreciate how much this plant can positively affect people. I think, you know, with, with uh, the legalization battle over the last, you know, call it 30, 20, 30 years, you have the other side of the coin, which is this reefer madness, which is, um, you know, it's a gateway drug. It's causes insanity and all of these other things, which, um, you know, frankly, take away from the fact that this plant has so many properties for wellness and medical efficacy. Um, and we don't know it all yet because we really haven't studied it. But the power of this plant to replace pharmaceuticals, uh, pain medication across the board is I, I just think it's still under um, it's an underdeveloped uh, and told story. And I'm going to continue to sort of tell that story, too. Well, thank you for that. I, I actually can't think of a better place to end it than that, because I think that is spot on and something that I don't think we hear enough about from the industry. Uh, right. That was a real that was a real advocacy answer. And I know you said it was personal and I'm sure that's why. Um, but I think we need well, more of that from the industry. And I really appreciate it. No, no problem. I think I, I may be the only CEO that ever or sorry, former CEO that ever, <laughs> that ever moved a lot of weight on both the black market and the, uh, the legal market. So, uh, well, uh, Steve, not... Steve D'Angelo was a CEO for a long time. I think there's, <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's definitely some old school Cali guys who are uh, probably still, yeah, okay, that can match that. but, but publicly traded MSO, you, you're probably right there. <laughs> yeah. I, my, my fellow CEO or former fellow CEO brethren, I don't think get, uh, get out of their suits and, uh, smoking a lot of weed lately, but I'm, I'm happy to, to, to find that, uh, find that myself is wrong in that assumption by smoking a, a joint with any of the other CEOs at any time. We'll find out. Let's do it, we'll Frank. See. You and I will go, uh, we'll go, we'll go, we'll go MSO to MSO and see how high we can get their, uh, their CEO. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to it, Chris. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Frank, this has been, uh, this has been terrific. It's a really fun discussion. I, I'm really, I'm proud of what you guys have built over to send. It's a great company, uh, some great products, great stores and great people. I've had an opportunity to work with um, not only you, but with a number of folks in your team, uh, particularly over the last couple of years. Um, and uh, you got a really quality group of folks there. And I think that reflects in uh, the performance of the business. So I uh, congratulate you on what you've built and, and really appreciate you uh, spending some time with us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you all. Huge thanks to Frank Perullo, co-founder, strategic advisor, and board member for Ascend Wellness Holdings. Check them out at awholdings.com. As always, thanks for listening. If you want to chat with us, please find us on Twitter with the handle at the underscore green rush on Instagram at the green rush underscore podcast, or drop us an email greenrush at kcsa.com. And lastly, don't forget to subscribe in your favorite pod catcher. One take Shay, one take. <laughs>